on the latest episode of Real Health with me, Carl Henry. I'm delighted to be joined by international best-selling author Heman Sunim, telling us what to do when things don't go your way. When we are, you know, very young and have a first love and the first love did not work out, we feel as though this is the end of the world. However, we learn that is not the case. We move on. We find some other people. We begin to see that uh, when things don't go your way, uh, maybe it's not the end. As ever, we're available on all podcast platforms. On this week's Big Tech Show, you might not think it could happen to you, but our guest this week explains how a significant number of Irish people may be falling victim to romance frauds online. Victims can feel a misplaced sense of shame. People can blame themselves. They feel embarrassed. And so they don't want to tell family, friends. They don't want to report it to the police. In some cases, of course, the victims are already in relationships. They're married. They have an extra reason to keep that quiet. The Big Tech Show, available on all podcast platforms. Platforms. If you like the Indo Daily, you can follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The wounds within the ICA are deep and raw, and they go back a very, very, very long time. Today on the Indo-Daily, bread-making to backbiting. What's going on in the Irish Country Women's Association? You wouldn't believe the viciousness that there is. Um, The difference between the kind of warm matriarchs we see and what these women say about each other behind each other's backs. The most Machiavellian stuff you've ever heard in your life. The ICA has been a backbone of Irish life since its foundation in 1910. The gentle art of flower arranging here given a particular ICA direction by instructor Rita Lett. This arrangement is... We know that we must never forget the importance of the farmer's wife. Well-run small farms and competent housewives go together. Now a series of allegations about corporate governance reveals a series of rows that have been cooking for years. Members of the ICA whistleblowers have been getting in touch with the charities regulator saying, actually, under the surface here, under this kind of warm, wholesome exterior, all does not actually seem to be well in the ICA. I'm Fiannon Sheen, and today on the Indo-Daily, I'm joined by Irish independent news correspondent Ellen Coyne to look at troubled times in the ICA. So, Ellen, tell us, what is the Irish Country Women's Association? So the Irish Country Women's Association is the biggest and oldest women's organisation in Ireland. The over 100 participants are only a fraction of the 28,000 members of the Irish Country Women's Association who, scattered all over the country, sometimes practice their skills in isolation, but still manage regularly to enjoy getting together. There's a misconception about its name. When it says country women, it actually means women of Ireland, but I think people would naturally enough kind of associate it with rural areas. A lot of people in smaller towns and villages would kind of know like the backbone of the local area. These kind of matriarchs would often be ICA volunteers. 25 women arrive to register their freshly made brown breads and they receive a warm welcome from the ICA president. Carlo Federation, well, you're very welcome. And what makes your brown bread different to anyone else? It's just my secret ingredient. It was set up well over 100 years ago to kind of challenge women who were 
isolated or didn't have a lot of rights uh, when they were largely living in the home. But over the years, it started to kind of have a role lobbying uh, politicians for the rights of women, children and people living in rural Ireland. But I suppose to the majority of the public, they would kind of know it as this innocuous, wholesome organisation of, uh, of women volunteers who kind of bake bread and sew and do charity work and that sort of thing. And now we're seeing the, the, the backbiting going on uh, in the background. Quite something and corporate governance issues coming up. Can you take us through, so what's the role of the charities regulator here? So the charities regulator is basically like the watchdog to keep an eye on charities and make sure that they're they're in line with the law. There's a lot of very, uh, very important and very complicated laws that exist around charities for very good reason. For example, a trustee of a charity shouldn't really profit from that. Um, and it's particularly important when you have um, organisations that the public might be donating money to to make sure, make sure that that's being spent wisely. So a couple of weeks ago, we got this very mysterious anonymous letter into the, the Irish independent, uh, raising some concerns about the ICA. And as you can imagine, this certainly raised eyebrows because it's a very wholesome, cherished, beloved organisation. But what unspooled over the last couple of weeks uh, was a story about how for the last few years, at least since 2018, um, members of the ICA whistleblowers have been getting in touch with the charities regulator saying, actually, under the surface here, under this kind of warm, wholesome exterior, all does not actually seem to be well in the ICA. Tell me about the annual rent for the home office. Now, this is uh, this was probably one of the most alarming things and the charities regulator was pretty critical. So a few years ago, the ICA used to have an honorarium of exactly €16,500 that it used to give to a, to a certain member in a kind of rotating role. My understanding is that revenue came in and we're saying that this was not only an income, which you shouldn't have, it was a taxable income. So they decided to get rid of it. The next year, coincidentally, it decided to give the person in that role rent for her home office of exactly €16,500. Now, not naming this individual uh, for a number of reasons, but I had a look at the area that she's in and I was able to find a four bedroom family home for less than the monthly rent that the ICA was giving this person just for one room for their home office. This was brought to the attention of the charities regulator who took a really dim view of what they saw as a trustee of a charity profiting from their position. Um, the ICA came back and argued that they thought it was actually a reasonable amount of money to give someone for a home office, even though the charities regulator had asked how on earth this could have met the, the, the threshold of value for money. Uh, but the ICA was very quick to point out that uh, this payment doesn't exist anymore. They got rid of it after that. What about the entertainment bill? Yes, so this was also flagged. There was €7,000 spent in one year on entertainment. And the problem that people in the ICA were, ICA were having that was that when they were asking questions of the board, when they were querying what was this money spent on, they weren't really getting proper answers. And it was very difficult to kind of get this information from their financial accounts. So someone had to flag it with the charities regulator. And in the correspondence that we've seen, the charities regular has been writing to the ICA for just about a year now. Um, the Irish Country Women's Association said that it had spent this on entertainment. So the part of its remit is to kind of bring women together. Uh, it does actually play a major role in being a source of friendship for maybe homemakers who would otherwise be very isolated. And the ICA said that it's had spent the €7,000 on kind of traditional Irish musicians and Irish dancers in one year. Okay. A legal anomaly then. Again, 
often can happen with, with charities, voluntary organizations, they, they run into, into difficulties. But in this case, you had two ICAs. Yeah, so the chari- this is one of the first things the charities regulator uh, kind of brought up with the ICA at the start of its correspondence. It seemed that the people who were listed as kind of directors or trustees with the charities regulator was completely different to the people who were listed on kind of the public accounts, the things that you or I might be able to access. And the ICA came back and said that basically it has been, it's had what it described as a legacy problem where it has existed as two separate organisations for a number of years. There's kind of a trust and then a, a, a separate ICA. And it was saying that this was kind of like a legal anomaly that it needed to resolve. So in its correspondence with the charities regulator, it said that it had hired Mason Hayes and Kern, which would be a fairly high profile and certainly not cheap legal firm based in Dublin who are very experienced in the area of charity law. This though brought up a new problem because some members of the ICA board said that they were never asked to sign off on hiring Mason Hayes and Kern. Um, and in the ICA, you know, that sort of spend would have to be signed off on by both the ICA financial committee. And if it goes over a certain amount of money, which it did in this case, the board as well. And I think we're now aware that I think up to September, the ICA had spent €100,000 on Mason, Hayes and Kern to try to get help on charity law and corporate governance and all of this sort of thing. And the ICA have issued a statement on these matters. The ICA is engaged with the charities regulator to address any relevant issues. We have agreed a timeline with the regulator for the implementation of the changes necessary and our legal advisors have been properly retained. What about this issue of three members of the ICA board being removed from their positions? How did that come about? So this was really mysterious. Basically, three members of the board, Patricia Madden, Joanne Dunphy-Allen and Carol Grogan, they're all volunteers with the ICA who were also members of its executive board. And last month, this really mysterious letter from Hilda Roach, the ICA president, went around to some of the federation president. So like your federation is like your local branch of the ICA to say that the three women had been kicked off the board. My understanding is that they were never given a reason. And in this letter, the president asked everyone to treat this extremely sensitively and confidentially. Basically, don't tell the members that it's happened. So a second letter went out to the members and all it said was that there have been some changes to the board, but the changes are confidential. So The members were actually never told that these three women who'd be very prominent and very well-respected members of the ICA had been unceremoniously kicked off the board in a meeting which I think lasted 30 minutes and was held on a Sunday, which is very offensive to some members of the ICA. Um, We still don't have an explanation from the ICA about why these women were removed from their positions, but we do understand from multiple well-placed sources that they had all been asking questions about the ICA, about its corporate governance, about how it was handling its financial payments, about how it was kind of meeting the charities law that is that it is required to meet. We should say that all three of the women have declined multiple requests for comment. They are not speaking to us, but it's been a source of huge anger among some members of the ICA and some former ICA presidents that these three women were kicked off the board, that their name was circulated to some federation presidents. Um, And, you know, some people kind of thought that that had created suspicion around them, like not saying the reason why they were kicked off had let people open to speculate about all sorts of things. And these women are all kind of professionals in their own right. They're very involved in their local communities. And the suggestion that they would have done something wrong has gone down really, really badly. And there is no suggestion of any wrongdoing on on their part. In fact, 
quite the contrary. They've exactly. been raising very valid concerns uh, here. Now, not the first time, though, that there have been issues with the the ICA and its board. Take me back four years. Uh, issues about rows on the board and elections. Yeah, so this, I think this is probably the point at which all of this came to a head within the ICA, all these kind of internal conflicts and questions people were asking. In 2018, there was a meeting in Dublin and by all accounts and from seeing the minutes, it was an absolute melee. There was absolute chaos. There was complete disagreement about how the ICA was running its elections. Its elections would be how you would end up with like a president or people in those sorts of prominent positions. Uh, All hell broke loose at this meeting. People were squished into this hotel room. They were being asked to vote on motions. They didn't know what motions were. Um, People were shouting each other down, taking microphones off each other, saying that they were making accusations that couldn't be substantiated. And what followed on from this was actually a high court case. People were kind of asking questions about the way that the ICA carries out its elections. Now, all of that is kind of a separate, complicated story. But the reason that it's relevant is we understand now that 2018 was the time at which people started independently of each other to contact the charities regulator and raise concerns. And I suppose that's another element to this story. We know that the charities regulator has been aware of some issues for a number of years, but it appears that the first time it wrote to the ICA wasn't until November 2021. So I think there's also some frustration in the ICA about the pace at which the regulator is kind of stepping in and some people feeling that beyond the charities regulator, they kind of have nowhere else to go with their concerns. Rouse, go back even further though and and take us back to 2006 and an art sale. Yeah, I mean, once you... Once we open the can of worms on this ICA story, there have been people coming to us bringing up things that have gone back years, if not decades. There's a very unusual story around 2006, 2007. So back in, I think, the 1950s, the ICA was gifted on Green On, this amazing stately home in, in Louth. On the outskirts of the lovely village of Turban Fecken, County Louth, a few miles from Drogheda, is on Greenall. Opened 30 years ago by the Irish Countrywomen's Association, it continues to be a centre for both friendly and useful contact. And in that, uh, there's some really important, really valuable, fine Irish art. Between 2006, I think Christmas 2006 and 2007, almost 40,000 euro of that art went on sale through a fine art auctioneer in Dublin without the ICA members or some of the board being consulted. And some of this was really, really, we went, we used an internet archive to go back and actually watch the website page for the auction. Some of it was described as incredibly important Irish art. There was art from Nano Reed, Evie Hone, very important art from leading women artists. And there was even art from B. Orpin, uh, who was actually a former ICA president herself that had been sold. When it emerged in 2007 that this had happened, the members were absolutely disgusted. Um, Some of them felt that they should have been given the opportunity to buy the art themselves to try to keep it within the ICA because some of it was so important to the ICA and very, very important art locally as well. Other people were kind of saying that when you added the value of all the art together, the fact that it was worth 40 grand meant that it was a significant asset that the members should have had an opportunity to sign off on before it was sold. We've asked the ICA why this happened. We've also asked them what they did with the money that they made from it. Like, where did that go? And we've had no answers. And the the ICA in its response has kind of said that, you know, this is a matter that dates back to 2006 and that the current leadership 
isn't really aware of it or kind of wouldn't really know it in detail. Um, but I think that that's probably an answer that won't satisfy people when the perception is there that there might be some kind of cultural, historic cultural problems within the ICA and how accountable it is to its own members. You've recently had a former president of the ICA, Breeder Raggett, uh, involved for 50 years, writing to the current president, Hilda Roach. What was she outlining in, in her letters? So on November 5th, the ICA had its winter conference in Cork. Coincidentally, that's the day that we broke our first story about it. So before that conference, they would invite kind of former presidents to come for a little luncheon do and they'd all kind of sit and eat together. Rita Raggett is a former president and she wrote to the current president and said she was so disgusted about the way that those three board members were kicked off the board. She couldn't possibly accept the invitation because she thought to be seen with the current ICA leadership could be misread as her tacit approval of the way they've kind of handled things over the past few weeks and months. She also said that she was really concerned about the level of legal spend, as we mentioned before, how much the ICA is spending on Mason, Hayes and Kern. And she was kind of demanding that the president, first of all, explain what ha- exactly what happened with those three former board members and exactly how much the ICA has spent on legal fees so far and what those legal fees were for. Now, we did ask the ICA to respond to all of the points that Breda made in her letter. But the ICA said that it doesn't kind of comment on uh, on individuals and it's used the same line when we've asked them repeatedly what the story is with the three board members who were kicked off the board. What kind of things have members of the ICA been saying about each other? You wouldn't believe the viciousness that there is, um, the difference between the kind of warm matriarchs we see you know, at the front and what these women say each other about each other behind each other's backs. I remember speaking to one source for this story and she was kind of bringing me through, you know, all the different vendettas and the personal politics that exist going back years, going back decades in some cases. And then she had to cut the conversation short because she had to go finish making a quilt before attending a function. This is after this woman was kind of briefing me on the most Machiavellian stuff you've ever heard in your life. In another case, someone was really, I mean, she was, it was like a bloodletting. She was really letting off steam about all these problems that have existed Existed and was very frank in, about one woman in particular who she believes just did irreparable damage to the ICA. She's kind of on this, this long kind of spiel, this kind of tirade about this woman who did this, that, the other. And she kind of, um, she brought it to a climax by saying, you know, she was some bitch and then pausing and saying, rest in peace. So the, the wounds within the ICA are deep, and raw, and they go back a very, very, very long time. I get that it's it's difficult because, you know, a lot of these women are, these women are unbelievably devoted to the ICA. You know, it's it's their lives and a lot of them are volunteers. It's not like they make a lot of money out of being in this position. And again, can you expect someone who is kind of a stalwart of the community type person to be an expert in corporate law and corporate governance? And yes, certainly there seems to be some historic problems. So I do understand that the ICA feels that it's in a really difficult position. It is certainly uncomfortable with the attention that it's having. And I've actually heard from a well-placed source that um, I think a very senior person in the ICA was saying that if people stopped talking to the Irish Independent, the story might blow over in two weeks. Now, I'm not so sure about that because the charities regulator certainly has some questions that are still unanswered. And more than that, I think that people can't, on the outside, can't underestimate the amount of hurt 
and upset that this is causing within the ICA. I mean, these women live for this organisation. Um, they're already concerned about the fact that its membership is dropping. I think it barely hit 6,000 last year. It used to be this really mighty, powerful, well-respected organisation. And now they're kind of feeling like it's becoming a bit of a conservative, old-fashioned thing. And it's being taken over by organisations like the National Women's Council of Ireland, which would certainly have a higher profile and would probably appeal more to younger women as well. So, I mean, we'd associate it more with, with bread making than yeah. backbiting, I, I suppose. <laughs> but it was a powerful lobby group, though, in its time as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you go back through Irish history, some of the most significant changes that there have ever been for homemakers in Ireland, the ICA would have been at the front of it. Like in the 1950s, it was at the forefront of bringing electricity and clean water into Irish homes. I think it actually travelled around the country with this modern, like model kitchen, showing people how much easier their lives would be if you had electricity in your kitchen. It would have been really involved in lobbying for breast cancer screening, cervical cancer screening. Um, I even went through like some archive correspondence between the ICA and the Irish government from the 1950s all the way up to the 1980s. It just seemed like this really tenacious, mighty organisation. It would have had politicians in the palm of its hand because it had so much power in rural Ireland and it really mobilised and organised women homemakers in a way that hadn't really happened before. And more than that, it was also a real antidote to loneliness, like women who were staying at home all day on their own as homemakers. The ICA was a way for them to kind of connect with other women and also kind of benefit from female camaraderie. I mean, the ICA even brainstormed uh, this kind of scheme where a nurse would cycle around rural cottages and homes on a bicycle looking after women. And that would happen postpartum as well. Like it really was so ahead of its time. And I suppose it's a shame because if you look at the way things are now with the cost of living, how difficult it is to be able to afford to be a stay-at-home mother, there actually is huge scope there for the ICA to kind of pick up issues like that that don't tend to be focused on as much by other modern feminist organisations. But I suppose while the while it's has these kind of cultural problems, while it has difficulty kind of getting accountability with its leadership, it's kind of not really vigorous enough to attract that younger generation of women. And I suppose if it keeps going this way, if the membership keeps dropping combined with these corporate governance problems, it would be a very meek end for an organisation that was once so mighty. Yeah, also, I mean, in its capacity as Boyntok Natuja, promoting Irish language, Irish yes, culture yeah. over over the decades as well. So very much uh, uh, at, at the heart of the land, which is its, its, its team tune. What do you see as being next for the ICA? And do you, do you really see a future for it at this point? I think it's a really difficult question. And it's actually, I know there's a lot of women who'd be really upset to hear anyone talking about the ICA not really existing anymore. But when you do have other organisations like the National Women's Council kind of outstripping it, you can certainly see how the government grants that the ICA benefits from. They could be in question. Also, the fact that um, if this controversy goes on, if the charities regulator keeps asking questions or finding issues with the ICA, that's very damaging to its reputation. And you have to consider a lot of ICA volunteers, as I mentioned, are professionals in their own right. These are very smart, astute women. And if they feel that they'll be kind of tarred by association with the ICA, they're not going to bother with it anymore. Like these women put more into the ICA than they often get out of it. So in a lot of ways, it's kind of relying on good faith to keep it going. But I know even from speaking to some sources over the last couple of weeks, there's some guilds of the ICA around the country that are talking about closing down and then kind of re setting themselves up as just 
those kind of nameless women's organisations that aren't attributed with the ICA at all, just because they find it's too much hassle, they're too unsatisfied, and they feel like when they have a problem in the ICA, they're being stonewalled when they're trying to fix it. And my thanks to Ellen Coyne. I'm Fiona Sheehan, and today's episode was produced by Mary Carroll, researched by Garrett Mulhall, with sound by John Smith. Archive clips from RTE, the ICA, and independent.ie. To hear more of our award-winning journalism, visit independent.ie or wherever you get your podcast. If you enjoy the Indo Daily, don't forget to like, follow, and leave us a review.